I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Our gracious God, I am, empty, I am an empty vessel, fill me. I am a cracked vessel. Fill me that the place of direction of that crack may flow out onto the, the graceful places where you need it to land. Fill us with your spirit. For these things we pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. He was running out of time, minutes left, and they didn't get it. He had been in the upper room with his disciples explaining exactly what was about to happen, and it had never happened in the history of the world before. And they needed to understand what was about to take place and what would, they would be experiencing. He sit, slipped out with his 11, one who had betrayed him had left. They slipped out with them from the upper room and they made their way through the moonlight of the full moon at midnight down through Jerusalem. In those last minutes, Jesus could hear his disciples so confused about what he had just been saying, that I'm going to go away from you and the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I will come and I will be with you and I will be in you. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I go to the Father, I will send the Holy Spirit, and he will come to not just be with you, but to be in you. And so as they made their way through Jerusalem on that silvery night, down through the streets, down into the Kidron Valley, and up and over and up towards the terraced hills of the Garden of Gethsemane, he could hear them in the background. He could hear them in confusion and frustration, that they did not understand what he was saying, and they needed to be ready. As they came to the terraced sides of the Garden of Gethsemane where you have the rock walls, the retaining walls for the, for the olive tr trees, those great and massive trees, and then interspersed with them are the, the ancient grapevines coming out with new plants on them. He stopped with his disciples. And we can ascertain that, that he now, with this plant in front of him, decided one last time to help them to understand the reality of what was about to happen that had never happened in the history world. Not the resurrection. Resurrections had happened, not like this. Deaths and resurrections of some of our ancient prophets had been seen. But something new that had never happened was about to happen. God was about to indwell sinful human beings, not just visit them, not just like the prophet come on them for a few minutes and, or a few hours and, and bring, out, bring about holy scripture or a prophetic message, but live in them. And they needed to understand that. So he pulls up to the side on that retaining wall and he says, I am the true vine. You see this? And you are the branches. You are my extensions of who I am and what I am doing. So as we, as we explore the scripture, let's ourselves receive what Jesus is saying. That as those vines come out, the first thing we need to know is that there is a divine connectedness to Jesus for the faithful disciple, the believer, those baptized and, and receiving Christ. Don't just have Jesus walking alongside you, but living inside of you. 
that there's a divine connection just as that vine goes out and connects to the branches and you have that, that life-sustaining nourishment continuously flowing out into the branches. So also the Holy Spirit, Jesus, as, as Paul talked about it, the Spirit of Jesus indwells the believer, living in and giving new life and guiding and strengthening that connectedness. And boy, did they need it. You know, for centuries, humanity that followed Jesus or, fo or followed the apostles, followed the, the love of God, had tried to obey God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, they, they had obeyed the rules and the laws of God. But there was something new in this connectedness. Jesus chose those, those 12 disciples. And it, he, and it seems as if he went out of his way to, to find 12 people that would normally hate each other. I mean, if you think about it, you've got, you've got four fishermen, hardworking, blue-collared. They work all night long pulling in and putting out their nets. Then they come in and spend most of the day sorting the nets and, and repairing them and hopefully selling their fish, exhausted but hardworking. And Jesus chose four of them. Then he chooses somebody that absolutely these fishermen would hate, a tax collector. In fact, there's a possibility that two of them were, but we know that one of them wasn't known only just a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector, Matthew. And this is a person who would sell out his neighbor to make money. The process of becoming a tax collector was to go to the Roman government and say that I can get more money for you than the other guy. And they would negotiate a price, and then the tax collector would go and, and get from everyone and what they could, and then what more that they could get, they would keep for themselves. They were usually very rich and very hated, especially by the blue-collar workers who were getting the advantage taken of them. And Jesus chose up one or two of them. The only person that would hate a tax collector more than a fisherman was a zealot. Now, zealots actually were a, were a group of, some would call patriots, others would call terrorists, but they were a group of very loyal Jewish people that hated the Romans. In fact, they were a group that was started during the count that Caesar did when Joseph and Mary ended up going down to Bethlehem. They were a group of people that were so hated the Romans and hated their control that they were sworn to kill anyone, any Roman that they could find. And they carried a dagger. It was called a sakari. It's about this long. The only people they hated more than Romans were disloyal Jews, i.e. tax collectors. And Jesus chose this group of people and a few more to be those who would love one another so much that it would change the world. Well, for three years, Jesus had taught them, done miracles with them, for them, and had, had infused himself in their lives. And at the Last Supper, their graduation banquet, they were still fighting over who was the greatest. They were still struggling with, with whether or not they were loyal to Jesus. They all said they were, but you and I know when they get to the garden, they'll run, on, they'll run like scared rabbits. That, that obedience from the outside will never be enough 
to change the world as Jesus has come to do, that it has to be an obedience from the inside. There has to be some infusion of God's power in the life of a person to change them from the inside out, and that was about to happen, and they didn't understand it. So Jesus tells them about this divine connection. This is what it's going to be, is that I and my Father, we're going to come and live inside of you, and through our life in you, you will begin to love and, and, and begin to proclaim this life. The divine connected. It's a superpower, honestly. I mean, as a kid, I always wanted to have superpowers. You know, I'd put the, anybody else, I don't know about you, but I'd get the towel, you know, stuff it in there and, and uh, want to have the S, you know, put the S on my T-shirt and, and, you know, jump off the, the swings and, you know, try to, try to be the, the superhero. And I'd, I'd always, I'd, I'd, some of you probably don't remember Shazam, but he had these really cool bracelets, you know, that had the, okay, somebody does, thank you, little buttons on them and, and I'd, push out the cups and I'd draw these little buttons and I'd run around like Shazam and you know especially with the Marvel and everything today a lot of people want well here's the reality if you belong to Jesus you have superpower it's in there it's a superpower but it may not be you know leaping off a tall building or or running faster than a speeding train but it is a superpower and we'll talk about what that really means so there's a divine connectedness that Jesus has brought about in the life of every believer. But in that divine connectedness, there is a uniqueness that, that is our part. And that uniqueness is that abide. Jesus says that, that like the vine, there's this nutrients coming in. Your role is to abide in my love, to abide in my word. That's, that's your role. To abide. And what does that mean? Well, abiding is, is the kind of life, well, let me put it this way. We abide in our homes. We go to work, we go to movies, we do, but we abide in the home. The home is, is described, meno in the Greek, as the place where you live when you're yourself. You know, that's, that's where you just relax, you know, you just walk around in socks and, you know, jammies. And I mean, it's just, it's the place where you're yourself, and that's what Jesus is saying. I want, I, if you're going to, to live in me and my life and my word is going to be in you, and it's going to be there when you're yourself. He said, abide in my words, which go back to the scriptures again, don't they? As the scriptures are the vessel, the place where Jesus' words are kept, where the place where the divine life of the Holy Spirit speaks to us and guides us and gives us direction and gives us hope and gives us courage. One of my favorite stories and, and books is, is called The Hiding Place. It's, some of you may know Corey Timboom during the is, it was the time of the German occupation of Holland. She and her family were watchmakers, and she was 54 when, uh, when, the, when the Nazi guard, the SS, came in and arrested her entire family. They had been those who had been hiding Jews. They were a part of the resistance, and her and her elderly 84-year-old uh, father and her sister, her older sister, and all of the family were arrested and taken to concentration camps. She ended up in Ravensbruch, which is about 90 clicks north of uh, Berlin. And while there, the only thing that kept her going was the Holy Scriptures. 
that God, she, she says in her book, The Hiding Place, that, that the scriptures, when you are in need, the scripture, she was surprised that the ink was even wet because it spoke so profoundly to the life and struggles and difficulties they were having. That the scriptures gave hope and gave strength and gave direction. There was a time when her, uh, when her sister reminded her, they were in one of the, uh, the rooms where, where the 900 women were kept, was about the size of this room, and they were on these big bunks. They went in and, and they laid on the little thin straw mats and there were fleas in the mats. And it was just, oh, and her sister told her, her sister Betsy said, you know, the word of God says, give thanks in all circumstances. So we need to thank God for the fleas. And she said, I can thank God for a lot of things. The fleas is not among them. And later they found out that as they were doing their Bible studies, the reason the guards, the, the, the guards wouldn't come in there was because of the fleas. So that it allowed them to be able to, to spend time finding hope and strength and in, within the word of God. It is, a, it is the precious place. And the, the longer I live and the more I go, the more I need it. My 5 a.m. daily office, I have to have that every day. It's, it's my oxygen to spend time in the word of God. That's what I love about the Anglican tradition. The Book of Common Prayer has the daily guide for scriptures, and I'm there every morning. Because I found that, that if I don't, I'm kind of like revert back to who I would normally be. I revert back to, to my old self. I need that, that daily, daily infusion of God's grace. So, so what is the outcome of all of this? We have a divine connection. We have that indwelling but what is Christ looking for? And he says that if you remain in me and my word remains in you, you will, you will bear much fruit. Well, what is, what's that fruit? What, what, is, what is that all about? It could be a lot of things, but in scripture, I did a, did a, a word study on the fruit. And it, in, in every place, in Paul's letters to the, the uh, Paul's epistles, to the, uh, the writer to the Hebrews, to John, it all goes back to the character of Jesus. It all goes back to what we call the fruit of the Spirit. It all goes back to the life of Jesus lived in the person begins to become the character of the person. It, it takes on the compassion, the love, the commitment, the, the, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control. Those things begin to, to flower out, to, to come into the life of the believer because that person is abiding and connected to Jesus and, and spending time in his word that it just kind of naturally outflows. And, and for some, it's a lot easier than for others. It wasn't that easy for me, and it still isn't. I, you know, I, I, I wasn't like a lot of you that, you know, were raised in a nice home. I... I was invited to church out of a bar when I was 21. I was a, in a cowboy bar and some friends invited me to church. And I was raised in the Old South. You may not know that, you probably can't tell that, but yep, I'm from the Old South. And I'm from Florida. And Florida used to be the Old South. It's, it's quickly taken on a life of its own. But, but in that, that can tell you everything. You know, Old South grandparents, great-grandparents, all, all Southern farmers. And, you know, I was raised a very prejudiced person. You know, I, when I was young, you know, we lived in a little house about 600 square feet, four, six of us, dirt road, no air conditioning. 
but, uh, but we were also in the time of busing, when busing started. And I'll never forget, you know, going to the little white school that I went to, and the buses rolled up, and our, our African-American uh, kids got off the bus. And into the fights we went. I mean, it was, it was not kind, and it was not good. Um, and I was raised that way. And, but I didn't know that was a bad thing until I started reading the scriptures. Later, invited to church out of a bar, I began to realize that that's not what Jesus would want for me. Now, here's the problem. I, I didn't want to change. I don't know about you, but I didn't want to change. I, I was happy with, with my own racial prejudice and, and frustrations and angers, and I could generate enough excuses uh, to keep me going. But one day I was, I was working as a courier, and uh, I was driving out on the highway l- reflecting on what, what God's word was. And uh, I said, you know what, God? I know I'm prejudiced. My problem is I don't want to change, but I know you do. So I pray that you will help me to want to change. Well, I was also working as a police officer at the time in Gainesville. And about, about a week later, I was out on the road with a partner and we just had dinner at a little shrimp restaurant and as we were driving over towards the University of Florida, this was Gainesville, and we got a call, there was a shooting. So was, uh, we had to go back to right about where we had been. So we lights and siren through town, got, and I re- never forget, I'm sitting in the passenger seat and, and the, uh, my partner, we, we drove up in and, and it was night and I could see in the headlights this young, young girl, she'd been shot in the arm and she comes running out, she's screaming. And so I jumped out of the car before it stopped. I wasn't driving, that's a good thing. And, and I ran up to her and she, she's hysterical. And uh, it had been her first day at work. It was a bur- little burger hut, a little background on that. It was a burger hut, she was her first day and she'd been hired by this elderly gentleman and his family, it was his family's burger hut, and, and they had, were shutting up for the night. The, the mom and kids had gone next door to the laundromat to get the, get the laundry and bring it over. He was in the back counting the money with his brand new employee when a knock came on the door. And it was somebody with a gun wanting the money. She had opened the door and, and, and you know, staring at this individual with a gun, and the owner of the burger hut was behind the door and he heard it. So he grabbed his little 32 and he pushed her out of the way and he started shooting and the perpetrator started shooting and, and uh, she got shot. He got shot twice in the chest. So when I got there, she, had, she was screaming and I, I what's, you know, asked him what's going on, I made sure she was okay. Then I ran to the back and laying on the ground was this, uh, was this man who had been shot twice. The... Uh, the paramedics were coming up trying to revive him. The mom and the kids were standing there. And I saw some things that didn't show up on the police report. Because when I ran up, there was a, there were, there was a frail black man that was praying over this man. It was a minister, I later found out. There was, a, there was an African-American family that, that right in the when we were actually were out searching for the perpetrator, pulled up and the entire family piled out of this huge car and just surrounded this family. Now the family and the man of uh, the owner was white and the perpetrator was black. 
And all on the radio as I'm out searching the neighborhoods, I'm hearing a black guy killed a white guy. A black guy killed a white guy. It's, that's all I was hearing. And I was, but, but I was seeing things that were going on that for some reason others weren't seeing. It, probably because it didn't confirm their own prejudice. But they didn't see that, that little old frail minister that came up and was kneeling in this guy's blood as he was dying, praying for his soul and for his family. And that other family that was coming up. And, and that shaped me. That began to open my eyes a little bit to something different, that maybe, that maybe people are people, and maybe I needed to find and allow the infusion of God's love to, to move into new aspects of the fruit of my life, new aspects of character and compassion. I ended up, when I went into seminary, I joined the the, the black seminarians union, I was the only white guy in there. I wanted to understand the, the unique challenges and culture and life in the African-American community. I later, some of you may know, I, we later adopted an African-American uh, child and then uh, a Indian child too. And we're disowned by some of our family for doing that. And I only share that with you to say that, that some of us some of us come from harder places and we have a lot further to go than some, of, than some others. But, but the Holy Spirit is putting new life into you and me. The Holy Spirit is infusing grace in places even where we're not quite sure we want him to go. But if you give him permission, that superpower will be available. And that's what I finally discovered about the superpower. Is it's not a superpower of me flying off a building. It's a superpower of me belonging to Jesus and being like him. And it's not me doing it. It's him doing it in me. It's not me trying to be obedient. It's me being available. It's me not trying to, to, to do and perform. It's him performing and doing. And it's like what Paul said. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who live in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. It is Christ who lives in the believer and Christ who lives through the believer to bear fruit and to give us the power to belong to him and to be his people and to love one another. Let us pray. Gracious God, you who have not just called us, but you who have blessed us and filled us with your spirit. Fill us all the more. Fill us to overflowing that we may not just be like you, but be you to a world that is in such need of love and unity and blessing. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.